Chapter Twenty Eight of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter Twenty Eight. On landing in England, I at once set off to the far northern county where she resided. I arrived at the well-known village. All looked the same. I recognized the cottages and their flower gardens, and even some of the elder inhabitants looking, methought, no older than when I left them. My heart hailed my return home with rapture, and I quickened my steps towards the cottage. It was shut up and abandoned. This was the first check my sanguine spirit had met. Hitherto I had not pronounced her name or asked a question. I longed to return, as from a walk, and to find all things as I had left it. Living in a dream, I had not considered the chances and the storms, or even the mere changes of the seasons of life. My pen lags in its task. I dilate on things best hurried over, yet they serve as a screen between me and fate. A few inquiries revealed the truth. Captain Rivers was dead. His daughter married. I had lived in a fool's paradise. None of the obstacles existed that I expected to meet and conquer, but in their stead a fourfold brazen door had risen, locked, barred, and guarded, and I could not even shake a hinge or put back a bolt. I hurried from the fatal spot. It became a hell to me, and, oh, to think that I had lived in vain, vainly dreamed of the angel of my idolatry, vainly hoped, and most vainly loved, called her mine when another held her, sold myself to perpetual slavery to her shadow, while her living image enriched the shrine of another's home. The tempest that shook my soul did not permit me to give form, or, indeed, to dwell consecutively on such desolating thoughts. As a man who arrives from a pleasant journey, and turns the corner where he expects to view the dwelling in which reposes his wife, his children, all dear to him, and when he gains the desired spot, beholds it smouldering in ashes, and is told that all are consumed, and that their bones lie beneath the ruins. Thus was I, my imagination had created home and bride, and fair being sprung from her side who called me father, and one word defaced my whole future life and widowed me forever. Now began that chain of incidents that led to a deed I had not thought of. Incidents or accidents, acts, done I know not why, nothing in themselves, but meeting and kindled by the fiery spirit that raged in my bosom. They gave such direction to its ruinous powers as produced the tragedy forever to be deplored. Bewildered and overwhelmed by the loss which to me had all the novelty and keenness of a disaster of yesterday, though I found that many years had gone by since, in reality it was completed, I fled from the spot I had so fondly sought, and hurried up to london on no fixed errand with no determined idea yet vaguely desiring to do something scarcely arrived i met a man whom i had known in india he asked me to dine with him and i complied because to refuse would have required explanation and the affirmative was more easily given i did not mean to keep my engagement 
yet when the hour came so intolerable had i become to myself so poignant and loathsome were my thoughts that i went so to lose for a few moments the present sense of ill it was a bachelor's dinner and there were in addition to myself three or four other guests among them a mr neville from the moment this man opened his lips to speak i took a violent dislike to him he was and always must have been the man whom among ten thousand i should have marked out to abhor he was cold proud and sarcastic withal a decayed dandy turned cynic who half despising himself tried wholly to disdain his fellow-creatures a man whose bosom never glowed with a generous emotion and who took pride in the sagacity which enabled him to detect worms and corruption in the loveliness of virtue a poor mean-spirited fellow despite his haughty outside and then when he spoke of women how base a thing he seemed his disbelief in their excellence his contemptuous pity his insulting love made my blood boil to me there was something sacred in a woman's very shadow was she evil i regarded her with the pious regret with which i might view a shrine desecrated by sacrilegious hands the odour of sanctity still floated around the rifled altar i never could regard them as mere fellow-creatures they were beings of a better species sometimes gone astray in the world's wilderness but always elevated above the best among us for Alethea's sake I respected every woman. How much good I knew of them! Generous, devoted, delicate. Their very faults were but misdirected virtues, and this animal dared revile beings of whose very nature he could form no conception. A burden was lifted from my soul when he left us. It is strange, said our host, that Neville should indulge in this kind of talk. He is married to the most beautiful and the best woman in the world. Much younger than himself, she yet performs her duties as a wife with steadiness and cheerfulness. Lovely beyond her sex, she is without its weakness. To please some jealous freak of his, she has withdrawn herself from the world and buried herself alive at his seat in the north, how she can endure an eternal tete-a-tete with that empty, conceited, and arrogant husband of hers is beyond any guessing. I made some observation expressive of my abhorrence of Mr. Neville's character, and my friend continued, Disagreeable and shallow as he is, one would have thought that the society of so superior, so perfect a woman would reconcile him to her sex. But I verily believe he is jealous of her surpassing excellence." and that it is not so much a natural, and I might almost call it generous, fear of losing her affections, as a dislike of seeing her admired, and knowing that she is preferred to him, especially now that he absolutely looks an old fellow. Poor Alithia Rivers, hers is a hard fate. I had a glass of wine in my hand. My convulsive grasp shivered the brittle thing, but I gave no other outward sign. Before I was miserable, I had lost all that made life dear, but to know that she was lost to herself, bound for life to a human brute, curdled my heart's blood, and spread an unnatural chilliness through my frame. What a sacrifice was there, a sacrifice of how much more than life, 
of the heart's sweetest feelings when a spirit sent to gladden the world and cast one drop of celestial nectar into the bitterness of existence was made garbage for that detested animal from that moment from the moment i felt assured that i had seen alethea's husband something departed from the world such as i had once known it never to return again a sense of acquiescence in the decrees of providence of confidence in the benevolence and beauty of the universe of pride despite all my misfortunes in being man of pleasure in the loveliness of nature all departed i had lost her that was nothing it was my disaster but did not injure the order and grace of the creation she was i fondly trusted married to a better man than i but bound to that grovelling and loathsome type of the world's worst qualities the devil usurped at once the throne of god and life became a hell you are miserable alethea you must be miserable for you there is no sympathy no mingling of hearts no generous confidence in another's esteem and kindness no indulgence in golden imaginations of the beauty of life you are tied to a foul corrupting corpse you are cut off from the dear associations of the social hearth from the dignified sense of having exchanged virgin purity for a sweeter and more valuable possession in another's heart coldly and listlessly you look on the day which brings no hope to you if indeed you do not rave and blaspheme in your despair oh with me the brother of your soul your servant lover untiring friend how differently had your lot been cast i rushed from my friend's house i entered no roof that night my passions were awake my fierce volcanic passions had i encountered neville i had assuredly murdered him my soul was chaos yet a tempestuous ray gave a dark light amid the storm a glimmering yet permanent irradiation mantled over the ruins among which i stood i said to myself i am mad driven to desperation but beneath this outward garb of my thought i knew and recognized an interior form i knew what i desired what i intended and what though i tried to cheat myself into the belief that i wavered i henceforth steadily pursued there is perhaps no more dangerous mood of mind than when we doggedly pursue means recklessly uncertain of their end thus was i led to the fatal hour a life of love and a sudden bereavement with such a thing the instrument of my ruin a contempt for the order of the universe a stern demoniacal braving of fate because i would rule and put that right which god had let go wrong oh let me not again blaspheme god made the stars and the green earth within whose bosom alethea lies she also is his and i will believe despite the hellish interference that tainted and deflowered her earthly life that now she is with the source of all good reaping the reward of her virtues the compensation for her suffering else why are we created to crawl forth to suffer and die i cannot believe it spirit of the blessed omnipotence did not form perfection to shatter and dissipate the elements like broken glass but i rave and wonder 
Alethea still lives and suffers at the time of which I write, and I, erecting myself into a providence, resolved to put that right which was wrong, and cure the world's misrule. From that moment I never pause to look back. I set my soul upon the cast, and I am here. And Alethea, her mysterious grave, you shall now approach. Bent upon a dangerous purpose, fate led before me an instrument, without which I should have found it difficult to execute my plan. I got a letter from a man in great distress, asking for some small help. He was on the point of quitting England for America, and working his passage. Slight assistance would be of inestimable benefit in furthering his plans. The petitioner followed his petition quickly, and was ushered in before me. I scrutinized his shrewd yet down-looking countenance. I scanned his supple yet uncertain carriage. I felt that he was a coward, yet knew he would tamper with roguery in all safety for a due reward. I had known the fellow in India. James Osborne was his name. He dabbled in various disreputable money transactions, both with natives and Englishmen, and at last, having excited the suspicion of government, got thrown into prison. He had then written to me, who was considered a sort of refuge for the destitute, and I went to see him. There was no great harm in the man. On the contrary, he was soft-hearted and humane. The infection of dishonesty, caught in bad company, and fostered in poverty, was his ruin. And he joined to this a strong desire to be respectable, if he could only contrive to subsist without double-dealing. I thought that by extricating him from his embarrassments, and removing him from temptation, I might save him from ignominy. So I paid his passage to England, where he told me that he had friends and resources. But his old habits pursued him, and even now, though poverty was the alleged motive for his emigration, I saw that there was secret fear of legal pursuit for dishonest practices. He had been inveigled, he said, to lend his name to a transaction which turned out a knavish one. With all this, Osborne was not a villain, and scarcely a rogue. There was truth in what he said. He had always an aspiration for a better place in society, but he saw no way of attaining it except by money, and no way of gaining money except by cheating. I listened to his story. "'You are an incorrigible fellow,' said I. "'How can I give ear to your promises? "'Still, I am willing to assist you. "'I am myself going to America. "'You shall accompany me.' "'By degrees I afterward explained the service I needed, "'yet I only half disclosed the truth. "'Osborne never knew the name or position of the lady "'who was to be my companion across the Atlantic.' A man's notions of the conduct of others are always colored by his own ruling passion. Osborne thought I was intent on carrying off an heiress. With this ally I proceeded to Cumberland, my mind more intent on the result of my schemes than their intermediate detail. I learned before I went that Mr. Neville was still in town. This was a golden opportunity, and I hastened to use it. I reached the spot that Alethea inhabited. I entered the outer gate of the Demence. I rode up to the avenue that led to the house. I was ushered into the room where I knew that I should find her. 
I summoned every power to calm the throbbing of my heart. I expected to find her changed, but when I saw her I discovered no alteration. It was strange that so much of girlish appearance should remain. Her figure was light and airy, her rich clustering ringlets abundant as before. Her face, it was Alethea, all herself, that soft loving eye, that clear brow, those music-breathing lips. Time had not harmed her. It was herself. She did not at once recognize me. The beardless stripling was become a weather-beaten, thought-worn man. But when I told her who I was, the name so long forgotten, never heard since last she spoke it, Rupert, burst from her lips. It united our severed lives, and her look of rapture, her accent all breathless with joy, told me that her heart was still the same, ardent, affectionate, and true. We sat together, hand linked in hand, looking at each other with undisguised delight. At first, with satanic cunning, I assumed the brother's part. I questioned her concerning her fate her feelings, and seeing that she was averse to confess the truth of her disappointed, joyless, married state, I led her back to past days. I spoke of her dear mother. I said that often had the image of that pale, wise spirit checked, guided, and whispered sage lessons to me in my banishment. I recalled a thousand scenes of our childhood when we wandered together, hand in hand, heart linked to heart, confiding every pain, avowing every wild or rebellious thought, or discussing the mighty secrets of nature and of fate, which to our young hearts were full of awe and mystery, and yet of beauty and joy. As I spoke, I examined her more narrowly. At first she had appeared to me the same. Now I marked a difference." Her mouth, the home of smiles, had ever its sweet, benignant expression, but her eyes, there was a heaviness in the lids, a liquid melancholy in their gaze, which said that they were acquainted with tears. Her cheeks, once round, peach-like and downy, were not fallen, yet they had lost their rich fullness. She was more beautiful, there was more reflection, more sentiment in her face but there was far, far less happiness. Before, smiles sprung up wherever she turned to gaze. Now an interest akin to pity and tears made the spectator's heart ache as he watched the turns of a countenance which was the faithful mirror of the truest heart that ever beat. Worse than this, there ever and anon shot across her face a look that seemed like fear. Oh, how unlike the trusting, dreadless Alethea! My talk of other days at first soothed, then excited, and threw her off her guard. By degrees I approached the object of all my talk, and drew her to speak of her father and the motives that induced her marriage. My knowledge and vivid recollections of all that belonged to her made her unawares speak, as she had not done since we parted, the undisguised truth and before she knew what she had said, I had led her to confess that she had never loved her husband, that she found no sympathy and little kindness in him, that her life had been one of endurance of faults alien to her own temperament. 
Had I been more cautious, I had allowed this to pass off at first, and won her entire confidence before I laid bare my own thoughts. For all she said had never before been breathed into any living ear but mine. It was her principle to submit, and to hide her sense of her husband's defective disposition. And had I not, with a serpent's subtlety, glided on imperceptibly, had I not brought forward her mother's name, and the memory of childhood's cloudless years, she had been mute with me. But now I could contain myself no longer. I told her that I had seen the miserable being to whom she was linked. I uttered curses on the fate that had joined them together. She laid her hand on my arm, and looking in my face with confiding innocence, "'Hush, Rupert,' she said. "'You make me mean more than I would willingly have you think.' He is not unkind. I have no right to complain. It is not in every man that we can find a brother's or a friend's heart. Neville does not understand these things. But he is my husband. As such, I honor him. I saw the internal feeling that led her to speak thus. I saw the delicate forbearance that filled her noble mind. She thought of her virgin faith, plighted. Long years spent at his side— her children, her fidelity, which, if it had ceased to cling to him, had never wandered, even in thought, to another. Duties exemplarily fulfilled, earnest strivings to forget his worthlessness. All this honor for her own pure nature, she cheated herself into believing was honor paid to him. I resolved to tear the veil which her gentleness and sense of right had drawn before the truth, and i exclaimed impetuously wrong yourself not so much dear girl do not fancy that your high soul can really bow down to baseness you pay reverence to your own sense of duty but you hate you must hate that man she started and her face and neck became dyed in blushes proceeding half from anger at being urged beyond her wish half from native modesty at hearing her husband thus spoken of as for myself, I grew mad as I looked on her, and felt the sweet transporting influences that gathered round. Here indeed was the creature whom I had loved through so many years, who was mine in my dreams, whose faith and true affection I fancied I held forever. And she was torn from me, given away, not to one who, like me, knew and felt her matchless excellence, but to a base-minded thing, from whom she must shrink, as from an animal of another species. All that her soul contained of elevated thoughts and celestial aspirations, all of generous, high, and heroic, that warmed her heart, what were they before a blind, creeping worm, who held a matchless jewel in his hand, and deemed it dross? He even could not understand, or share the more sober affections, mutual trust and mutual forbearance, the utterance of love, the caresses of tenderness. What were these to a wretch who saw baseness and deceit in the most lofty and pure feelings of a woman's heart? I express these thoughts, or rather they burst from me. She interrupted me. I do not deny, she said, for I know not how you have cheated me of my secret, but that repinings have at time entered my mind, and I have shed foolish tears to think that the dreams of my childhood were as a bright morning, quickly followed by a dim, cloudy day. 
but I have reproved myself for this discontent, and you do very wrong to revive it. The heart will rebel, but religion and philosophy, and the very tears I shed, soothe its ruffled mood, and make me remember that we do not live to be happy, but to perform our duties. To fulfill mine is the aim of my life. Teach me how to do that more completely, more entirely to resign myself, and you will be my benefactor. It is true that my husband does not understand the childish overflowings of my heart, which is too ready to seek its joys among the clouds. He does not dwell with rapture on the thoughts and sentiments which give me so much life and happiness. He is a stronger and sterner nature, a slower one also, I acknowledge, one less ready to sympathize and feel." But if I have in my intercourse with him regretted that lively, cheering interchange of sentiment which I enjoyed with you, you are now here to bestow it, and my life, hitherto defective, your return may render complete. I laughed bitterly. Poor innocent bird, I cried. Think you at once to be free and in a cage? At once to feel the fowler's grasp and fly away to heaven? Alethea, you miserably deceive yourself. Hitherto you have but half guessed the secrets of a base, groveling spirit. Have you never seen your husband jealous? She shuddered, and I saw a spasm of exquisite pain cloud her features as she averted her head from me, and the look of trembling fear I had before remarked crept over her. I was shocked to see so much of the slave had entered her soul. I told her this. I told her she was being degraded by the very duties which she was devoting herself, body and soul, to perform. I told her that she must be free. She looked wonderingly, but I continued, Is not the very name of liberty dear and exhilarating? Does it not draw you irresistibly onward? Is not the very thought of casting your heavy chains from off you full of new and inexpressible joy? Poor prisoner, do you not yearn to breathe without a fear? Would you not with transport escape from your jailer to a home of love and freedom? Hitherto she had fancied that I but regretted her sorrows as she did, and repined as she did over a fate whose real misery she alone could entirely feel. She repented having spoken so openly, yet she loved me for my unfeigned sympathy. But now she saw that something more was meant. She looked earnestly at me, as if to read my heart. She saw its wishes in my eyes, and shrunk from them as from a snake, as she exclaimed, Never, dear Rupert, speak thus to me again, or we must again part. I have a son. The radiance of angelic love lighted up her face as she uttered these words. And then, my error and weakness being her strength, she resumed the self-possession she had lost during our previous conversation. With bewitching grace, she held out her hand to me, and in a voice modulated by the soul of persuasion said, Let us be friends, Rupert, such as we once were, brother and sister. I will not believe that you are returned only to pain and injure me. I am happy in my children." Stay but a little, and you will see how foolish I have been to complain at all. You also will love my boy. Would you not think that these words had sufficed to cure my madness and banish every guilty project? 
had you seen her her inimitable grace of attitude the blushing tender expression of her face and her modest earnest manner a manner which spoke the maternal nature such as catholics imagine it without a tincture of the wife a girlish yet enthusiastic rapture at the very thought of her child you would have known that every scheme i meditated was riveted faster every desire to make her my own forever more fixed and eager i went on to urge her till i saw every feature give token of distress and at last she suddenly left me as if unable any longer to bear my pertinacity she left me without a word but i saw her face bathed in tears i was indeed insane these tears which sprung from anguish of soul to think that her childhood's companion should thus show himself an injurer instead of a friend i interpreted into signs of relenting into a struggle with her heart End of chapter 28